continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going we're to go back to those passages that we're jumping ahead from this week. Uh, but this week is a really important passage because it tells us what the kingdom look, looks like from an ethical perspective. From a perspective of love. How is the Christian supposed to relate to society? How is the Christian supposed to relate to the world around them when they're faced with harm and hatred? How are we called to interact with and to love the world around us? And so Jesus, as he starts his sermon, the most famous sermon that has ever been preached, preached by the perfect preacher. It's the only perfect sermon by a perfect preacher, right? Because today you won't get a perfect sermon by a perfect preacher because I'm preaching it. But Jesus, though, he is the perfect pastor in every way. And as he gathers his disciples and he gathers his followers, he opens his mouth and he gives them the marching orders of the kingdom. I mean, these are the revolutionaries. These are those who would upend the world around them. And what are his words? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's not exactly the marching orders for the Fortune 500 company or for a hostile takeover of the world around them. It's the marching orders of King Jesus for the kingdom of love. And this is the ethic that he is calling his church to live under. This is the ethic that he's calling his people to live under. And it's an ethic that we should pay attention to here today. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, when he was questioned by an attorney, attorneys are always asking good questions, and so they get to Jesus, and they, uh, he had already stumped some of the people called the Sadducees, it was kind of the ruling Pharisaic class of religious people, and he stumped them, and they heard that he stumped them, uh, so they wanted to ask this question, and they thought, this is the question that we're going to get him on, because you know, if he doesn't answer this right, then we're going, to be, we're going to be able to say, see, this guy is not the Messiah. This guy is discredited. You can't follow him. You can't pay attention to him. And then we pick it up at Matthew 24, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So when Jesus is giving his ter interpretation of the law in the Sermon on the Mount, because that's what he's doing, he's telling you how he reads the law of God, which it's worth paying attention to because he wrote it, <laughs> right? If there's someone that's going to tell us how to read it, it's the person that wrote it. And so we're paying attention to the way Jesus wrote the Ten Commandments and the 603 commandments that exist outside of that. And we're trying to understand how are we to live in light of that. And he's saying it boils down to these two things, love God 
and love others. And so Jesus is reorienting the ethic of the law that has been preached by the Pharisees and the religious teachers in a perverted way, in a backwards way, and he's reorienting it to the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, no, this is the way the law is to be understood and the law is to be interpreted. It's the law of love. That's the kingdom ethic. And this is what we should pay attention to. And Jesus says, here, you have heard it said. When he says you've heard it said, he said there's a common understanding of the way the law of God was understood and read. And there was a common way that it was preached and taught by the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And Jesus says, here's how you've heard it said, but I say to you. So he's taking the authority of the law and he's not diminishing it. We all saw we saw that last week because he says that not an iota, not a dot of the law passes away. But he says, this is important for us to understand it. But I say to you. And here here he talks about loving those who harm you. Loving your enemies, loving those who hate you. What Jesus is calling us to is a preemptive love, a love that chooses to love without precondition. Without someone loving us back, we are going to make a conscious choice to love in spite of the harm that may have already happened to us or the hate that might be coming for us. Now, um, a few years ago, uh, moved into my new neighborhood and met the neighbors and uh, really, you know, that first experience with your neighbors, you're, you're kind of wondering, how's this going to wind out, right? And um, and so uh, pleasant people all, all the way, all, all together. Uh, one of the gentlemen that we met, we, we thought, man, this guy's a little bit rough around the edges, but he's our direct neighbor. I guess he'll be all right. And so one day uh, I'm working and uh, I get a call from my wife and she's kind of frantic. She's crying and she's upset. And, she's, and I said, Carrie, Carrie, what happened? What's the matter? And she said, We'll just call him Dave because that's what his name is. Um, <laughs> she said, Dave, he yelled at me when I parked in front of the house. I said, well, he yelled at you? And she said, yeah, he, he yelled at me. Like he was waiting for me. He walked next to the car. I opened the window and he just started berating me. I said, really? And I was my, like, it wasn't just like really calmly. It was like, what the, uh? I'm going to go after this guy. And so, I mean, before she could even finish talking, I actually hung up the phone. I'm bowling up my fist. Blood is pumping through my veins. I'm getting in the car and on my way over, I'm picturing myself doing a WWE Smackdown on Dave. Right. And so as we're driving to as I'm driving to the house, I'm taking deep breaths and I'm trying to calm down. But let me tell you, I'm not thinking 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. I'm not thinking that. I'm thinking, how can I hurt this guy without going to jail today? You know? And so as I pull into the front of my house, I see that he's in the garage. And so before I even go to talk to my wife, I'm straight into the garage. And and I take a deep breath on my way and I say, Lord, help me. (laughs) And then I see him. I said, Dave, tell me what the problem is. And he said, he acted like he, that I didn't know what I was talking about. Like, he, he's like, what do you mean what's the problem? And I said, my wife called me crying because she said you yelled at her. He says, oh, she's crying. Oh. And he looked at me and he said, 
But the way you guys park in front of your house. And then he started belittling and berating me. And I thought, oh my goodness. I'm just envisioning, you know, just kind of boom. <laughs> but that didn't happen. And so I take a few deep breaths and I realize this guy is not to be reasoned with right now. He's had a few drinks, maybe a few tin. So I go into the house and we start thinking, man, maybe this is just going to wear off. Maybe this neighbor is not as bad as we think. But you know, once the damage is done, the damage is done. How can that be reconciled? How can that be made right? And then later on, we realized that we were going to have continual problems with this neighbor. And this neighbor would constantly be a source of harm. And his hatred would be upon me and my family. It got to a point where my kids, whenever we drove home and came in front of the house, they were afraid if the neighbor was outside. And so it was a problem. And it all boiled over one day when we had community group at the house. We had about 12 people over and we're studying the Bible and I hear a boom, boom, boom at the door. And open the door and there's Dave. And he's ready to berate and belittle me again in front of my house guests. And that, this is the true test of a pastor. What do you do with everybody there? Like, you can't just get your shotgun out and your shovel. Um, <laughs> nor should you. Nor should you. Um, and so I asked him to leave my property. And the next morning I called the police department and I said, this has been happening. What should I do? So I filed a restraining order. We had court the next week. I found out that his house was actually for sale. He wasn't even living in his house when he was complaining about things. Um, and so found out that his house was for sale. It was going to close in two weeks, but I just didn't want this to happen again. It was it. So went and filed a restraining order. Had court for the Thursday a week later. And uh, that morning uh, of court, I got a call from his attorney. And he said, um, is this Mr. Walker? Yes, this is Mr. Walker. Well, I'm here to talk to you about my client, and my client's really sorry for what he did, and he'd like for you not to press charges. Is there any way we could just drop this thing right here? And I'm thinking, no, no. He says, well, he's moving in next week, and, you know, he kind of needs to pack up and things like that. I'm like, well, he can hire movers for crying out loud. I don't want this guy near me or next to me. He's been such a problem. And that's justifying myself, right? I mean, it was, everything was like, yes, uh, you guys were like, yes, yes. And then an hour later, I thought, you know what? I don't feel right about it. So I called up his high-powered, expensive attorney that just gave a $700 apology. And I said to him, yeah, I'm going to drop it. I didn't go to court that day. And the good news is we didn't have any more problems with the man who we called Dave. But... You know what? I'd love to tell you that man, Jesus Christ, worked in his heart in this immeasurable way. And he fell down at the feet of Jesus and started worshiping. And God Almighty grabbed him. That didn't happen. But God still called me to love. And even to this day, there are days where I remember pulling into the front of the house and wondering if I'd ever get into a fight again with this person. And it reminds me to pray for him. And even today, as I've preach this week, it reminds me to pray for him, praying for his son as well. Now, I don't know if you have any Daves in your life. Anybody have any Daves in their life? Daves? Vanessa, you've got a Dave in your life right over there. So, um, yes, we have Daves in our life, right? We've got those people that are like those people, 
They're the people that harm us. We don't really know why. We've just been a source of despise for them. They're people that are hurting us. They're people that hate us. And those are the people that Jesus calls us to love. It's different than any other way of the world. That God would call you to love someone who harms you. That God would call you to preemptively show love to those who hate you. And here's why God does it. Here's why Jesus Christ does it. Because healing is greater than harm. Reconciliation is greater than restitution. And self-denial is greater than self-protection. You see, we're not living for this world alone. And that God is in the business of calling His enemies friends. And that there is a work of transformation that only He can do in an individual that was once hard-hearted that can be made low or brought low or softened by Him. And so is God willing to allow you to go through hurt and harm and injury in order for reconciliation to occur? Yes. Because this kingdom is not about you. It's about Him. And that heaven is filled with people who you would call your enemies. It's filled. And so if you're uncomfortable with that, you will be massively uncomfortable with heaven. And I guarantee you there are some people that are there as well that you have hurt and harmed and caused distress to that will least expect you there. And you're going to be like, I'm worshiping next to you. Wow, this is amazing. And that's only because of the greatness of God. And this is the way that God is calling us to live as we take Jesus's words here and we allow these words to shape our life. Now, I, I want to offer a, a, a little bit of, uh, of clarity here. Many have taken this passage and have used it for somewhat of a pacifism. This is why you should never go to war. This is why you shouldn't be a police officer. This is why you shouldn't join the army. Now, if you're going to use the Bible for that, you probably should use another verse because Jesus is not intending for you to use this as an argument for that. Jesus is in, intending for this to be an argument. In fact, he's correcting people to say, let the courts be the courts, but you in the well of personal life, this is the way you are to live. Because this is where the Pharisees were getting the law backwards, is they took the law that was supposed to be within their justice system, and they brought it into the realm of personal relationships, and then they took some kind of vigilante system that says, man, if somebody cuts off your finger, cut off their hand. If somebody cut, gouges out your eye, then take their head off. And so there's this world of retribution that's going on that Jesus is entirely upset at flipping tables over, and saying that he doesn't want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But anyone who slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Right? The, the, the slap on the right cheek was the ultimate insult. It wasn't about injury. It was about insult. It would be like the equivalent of defamation. You could take somebody to court for it. The right hand to the right cheek, right? And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. There's a man named Peter Cartwright. He was famously known uh, for being defeated by Abraham Lincoln for his congressional house seat. 
Uh, Peter Cartwright was actually a Methodist preacher. He was a circuit rider. Circuit rider was like a frontier missionary. He rode on horses and they preached the gospel in these various places. And he was a serious Christian. And one of, the, one of his enemies wanted to really put the seriousness of his Christianity to the test when he saw Peter Cartwright and he decked him with his right fist on his right cheek. And Peter Cartwright turned the other cheek. And so he punched him on his left cheek as well. And then after that, Peter Cartwright balled up his fist and gave an uppercut. And he looked at him when he was on the ground and he said, my Lord never said to turn the cheek another time. <laughs> so I guess, you know, if you want to turn another time, you, 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 after the second time, then don't, don't deal with it anymore. Actually, that's not the way we should read it. But I know that's the way we all want to think and let it play out. But the point of it is, is that you should be willing to suffer insult and harm for the sake of reconciliation. Because God says that reconciling is the goal of peace. Peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so we are to be people of peace. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If you're going to court for a lawsuit, you're not really thinking about reconciliation. You're thinking about how can I get out of here with the least harm done. You're thinking about protecting your possessions. Jesus is saying, don't protect your possessions. Give them more. Give them more. What harm is done if you give them more? When your provider, God is your provider and he takes care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. So... When you think about someone who wants to injure you, your heart, your heart's placement in those times is of utmost importance. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. There's a little bit of Jewish history that's necessary in this, understanding this one. Uh, Roman soldiers could commandeer people to carry their baggage. They could do it for up for a mile, up to a mile. So if you remember Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Christ, he was commandeered by a Roman soldier and told that he should do that. And so he had to do that. It was not a choice that he, he, had to, he was able to make. It was something that by law, legally, the soldiers could ask him to carry that cross. And so it was, not, it was commonplace for, for a Jew to be asked by a Roman to carry their baggage. And that was an insult. Because they were under foreign occupation, and for them to carry the, the baggage of a Roman soldier was absolutely insulting. It was beneath them. Jesus says to them, rather than going one mile, why don't you go two? You know, a gentle answer turns away wrath, right? Like, you have to get outside of yourself. You have to really die to yourself in order to respond to this. And the kingdom is very much about a death. But it's not about the death of your enemies. It's the death of yourself. It's you dying to self so that reconciliation could be made possible. And it's also realizing that vengeance will come into play one day. Because God says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. But vengeance is not ours. We leave the vengeance up to the Lord because he is in control of all things and he's good and he's just and he's holy and he's mighty and there is no sin that will ever go unpunished and God will get justice in time. But we are called to reconciliation because God is in the business of making his enemies his friends. He's so good. 
And so Jesus is calling us uh, to this way of life. Matthew 5, 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There's this tendency we have to hold so tightly to our possessions. And you can't take them with you. And there are people who need them more than you do, believe it or not. And they're going to ask you for those possessions. He says, give. Now, I know there's all these things running through your mind, like what if they're going to spend it on alcohol? What if they're going to do this? What if they're going to do that? And I want you to consider those things. Don't be flippant about it. But I also want you to say that the Holy Spirit is always prompting you towards generosity towards other people, in particular people who have needs or don't know him. And you are to follow the promptings of God's spirit and think about life as less belonging to you and more belonging to him so that you can love one another and know that God is your provider. And he always gives good gifts to his children and he's not going to let you go without. This is the goodness of God. He's got so much. And it glorifies God so much when his children willingly live life like this. Not like this, but like this. Open-handed. Saying, everything that I have, everything that I am, belongs to you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, We must desire to rid ourselves of the spirit of retaliation. Our desire to defend ourselves, revenge ourselves for any injury or wrong that has been done. That only comes by the work of the Holy Spirit that causes us to be born again. Is this an impossible life? Yes, it is. Without the Spirit of God, it is. Without being born again of the Spirit of God by the blood of Jesus through the sacrifice of Christ, it is an absolutely impossible life. But with Christ, all things are possible. And you can live this life. Matthew 5, 43 and 44. This is loving when hated. You heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, again, pay attention to that. This is the common teaching. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, he corrects it. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The Old Testament command in Leviticus chapter 19 is the one Jesus referenced when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. It would have been very familiar to the Jews, in particular, the teachers of the law in that time period. And when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying that, you know, there's he's opening the understanding of what a neighbor is. Leviticus 19, I'll I'll read you a little portion of it. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so when they read Leviticus 19, which is a myriad of commands, I encourage you to check it out. Um, There's a myriad of different things related to loving your neighbor. And when they read Leviticus 19, they were able to say in such a way that um, the neighbors were only a Jew. Because you should not bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. And so their neighbors were their fellow Jews, their fellow men. Well, Jesus, he... He unravels that understanding or that thinking that your neighbor was just restrained to your fellow man or constrained to your fellow man when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. 
You know the story of the Good Samaritan, the people that pass by, uh, the, the man who's left for dead on the side of the road, who's a Jew neglected by Jews. Who's the one that helps him? Well, it's the Samaritan. And the Samaritan's the one that's hated by the Jews, considered unclean by the Jews. And Jesus looks back at the crowd that's asking him this question, and he says, who is the neighbor of the man left for dead? And they say it was the Samaritan. It wasn't his fellow Jew. And Jesus says, you're called to be as the good Samaritan, laying down your life, even at great expense, for your fellow man. We've all got our tribe, right? Your tribe is the people that are of your family, your political party, whatever kind of thing that you want to put within your tribe. Jesus says, e even the Gentiles love those who are of their tribes. Even the tax collector loves those of their tribe. That's not a supernatural love. Supernatural love is when you take the people that are those people and you call them my people. <laughs> and you say, these are human beings. They have thoughts. They have feelings. They're just in, in need of God as I am. And God might use me to make the world human again. You see, hatred that is unfounded or unwarranting. There is some hatred that's okay. The Bible talks about it, but very little hatred that you and I give ourselves to on any given day. We don't have a hatred because people are putting down the holiness of God. We have a hatred because they cut us off in traffic. <laughs> but the hatred that is rampant among God's people is something that God wants to destroy in order that love might reign. And it includes calling our enemies people we love, loving those who persecute us. He says, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So Jesus becomes the ultimate meteorologist here. <laughs> you know, have you ever noticed that like wicked people don't have a cloud and rain and thunder and lightning over their heads all the time? Have you ever noticed that? You know, they get sunshine just like you do. They get rain just like you do. They get good weather. They get bad weather. It's the common grace of God that's given to all humanity so that some might come to repentance. That's what Peter says. And so the common grace of God that's given to humanity is the way we are called to love in that same way. Indiscriminate, without condition, giving of ourselves to those who don't deserve it. That's the mark of Christian love. And he says, that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. Sons. Sonship. Now, li listen, when I talk about sons, when the Bible talks about sons, when you see it in the New Testament, it, it's not talking about the difference between men and women or sons and daughters. It's saying that every, every gender, men and women, receive the same rights of sonship under the throne of heaven. Before it was only considered that the only ones who were eligible for the inheritance from the father were the sons. But no, daughters are open to the inheritance of the father because they put their hope and their faith in the son, the eternal son, Jesus Christ. And so for those who think 
talk about the Bible as something that's so chauvinistic and disregarding of women. This is the most powerful pro-woman book you will ever read. I promise you that. Because you, daughters, are sons. In the eyes of God, men are no greater. And just as the firstborn sons were considered the most precious possessions of God, in Jesus Christ, the most precious possession of the Father, you, dear women, also receive the same love, care, and concern as a child of God as any man ever will because of the work that was done by Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is love, it's love, it's love. And there's something powerful and precious about that. Verse 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So, um, talks about tax collector. Matthew talks about tax collectors a lot in his book. If you read the book of Matthew. Do you know what Matthew was before he was a disciple? He was a tax collector. He was Levi. He was, he was one of the tax collectors that were, you know, inter- intercepting the merchant caravans. And they're like, oh, great, now I've got to pay the tax. And the tax collectors were hated by the Jews because the Romans recruited them in order to farm. Tax farming was the, was, was the process. As they would say, man, we need to get $20,000 from this group of people. And so the tax collectors would go in and their own people know where to get the money and they would go after that money because it had to take a Jew to know what the Jews could do. And so they were the hated ones. They were the ones that, that went after the well-being of their brothers. And so they were not considered brothers anymore. And then not only that, they weren't just getting the money for the Romans, but they were also tacking on a surcharge. Because if $20,000 was needed for Rome from this area and these people, they added $10,000 to it so they could live in their lavishness. And the only people that they could be friends with were the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And who was it that Jesus was having dinner with? Well, it was the tax collectors and the prostitutes. It was those who were hated by polite society. And Jesus was with them. Were they offensive towards a holy and righteous God? Yes, they were. Yes, they were. Just like you and just like me. Just like the Pharisees and just like the scribes. And Jesus went into those places, and then they were, they were, he's asked about it by the Pharisees. Why, why are you eating with these people? He says, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And in that place, tax collectors and prostitutes were converted and brought to God by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. How could he do that? How could Jesus do that? By showing a love that was completely different than the love of the world. And this is the love that God has called us to. Is that type of love. So this isn't all about loving your neighbor. This is all about, this is also about you. The guilt, the shame, the bitterness, the unforgiveness that you experience. It's not just for their good, it's for your good. Because bitterness, unforgiveness, rage... All of those things destroy you from the inside out. What good is it to hold on to those things against the people that, you, that have harmed you or hated you? You go to bed with it every night and you wake up, it in the, wake up with it in the morning. It's the thoughts that haunt you and chase you. It's the things that you cannot get out of your head. 
my mentor, Pastor Chan Kilgore, says bitterness is like drinking poison and, and thinking the other person is going to die. That's what we do. Take your pill of bitterness and what's going to happen? You're going to die, not them. It doesn't help. And so God wants you to experience freedom as a result of trusting him with unforgiveness. And listen, I don't the, the, the little spat with my neighbor. That was harm. Yeah, it was. But you guys, there's things that you may have endured in your life that I have no clue of. And when I say it, it's it's inhumane. It's gross. It's neglect. That's so insurmountable and unimaginable that you're like. I can't believe he's telling me to consider forgiveness and to drop bitterness right now. I can't believe it. But the nature of the gospel points you to Christ and says it's possible and it's good for you and that God seeks to do a restoration in you as a result. To trust him in those areas that you've been harmed so that you'd be healed. To trust in, in those areas where you have sought retribution so that you can be reconciled. And at the end of the day, will the, recon, will the relationship be restored? I don't know. I really don't. But will you be restored greater to the love of God than you were before when you trust him with that? Yes, you will, without a doubt. And when you receive the forgiveness of God by the grace and mercy of God for your sins, it makes you less accusatory for those against who sin for those who sinned against you. Because Christianity says that it's not just those people who sinned against the holy and righteous God, but it's we people, me people, you people. We've done it. And that's what Christianity speaks of. First Peter two, twenty one through twenty three says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled. He did not revile in return. He suffered. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You aren't the just judge. You aren't the one that can sit in the place of justice and execute perfect justice because you're not perfect righteous. You're not perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness hasn't flown through you, but purchase perfect righteousness is what you are called to. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus doesn't relax any of the commands. Not an iota of them pass away. But what does Jesus do? Because you and I can't fulfill even Jesus' words there in perfection. But what we can do is know that he fulfilled his own words. Because the Bible talks about a substitute. Someone who is perfect that is judged on your behalf. The theological term, if you want to write it down and take it home and study it a little bit, it's called substitutionary atonement. It means that in order for you to be made right or your sin to be atoned for, a substitute had to stand in your place. And that's the perfect righteousness of Christ. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Think about our Savior on the cross. He was praying for people. People who were harming him. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And when you think about the cross, you think about it done 2,000 years ago by an entirely different, different group of people than are in the room today. But the Bible doesn't let us get away with that. The Bible says you did it and I did it. Because if the sacrifice of sins was done by Christ once and for all, then you were a sinner in need of that sacrifice and it was because of you that he died and me that he died. And you were one who harmed Christ. And you were one who hated Christ. And He is the one that stepped into your life and my life with perfect love and perfect forgiveness. And He loved us with a supernatural love that we would never have had otherwise. And He brought us into that throne where we could say with a myriad of, myriad of, of angels and others, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive wealth and honor and wisdom and power and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This is God's grace. And for those of you who are seeking to live your life the way you want, one day, one day you're going to realize that you've been living in fantasy land because it won't ever come out that way. If you haven't figured it out now, you'll figure it out one day. And the grace of God is one that comes at you when you're running the other way as an enemy of God and it arrests you and brings you to the throne of God by the grace and mercy of the cross. And this is the grace that we need today. This is the grace that God is calling us to. Can we believe it? Can we surrender? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Sinclair Ferguson says, Jesus shows us the reality of the law's holiness as he bears the penalty of breaking the law by taking our place before the judgment seat of God. I think about the song, see if I get this right. It's on sporadic right here. Um, I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet. I don't remember the rest. <laughs> it's a moment almost, right? <laughs> Well, there's a moment right now for us. And it's the moment where I cast our minds to the cross and say the man who should call us an enemy calls us friends. And he set aside injury. And he set aside insult. And he set aside injustice. And he brought the perfect justice of God to bear not upon you, but upon himself. And so the perfect love of God, the reconciling love of God, is a preemptive love. One that comes despite hate, despite harm, and says, I love you. Based upon Jesus meeting every condition of God's love on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you that we can cast our mind to Calvary, where you bled and died for me. Where, Lord, you were harmed so that we could be healed. Where you were hurt, God, so that reconciliation and restoration could take place. Our God, forgiveness flowed from your veins. 
Our God, as you breathe your last breath, we entered into eternal life. All because the righteousness of Christ has been fulfilled through him. And so, Lord, we thank you and we trust you. And we sing this song with our hearts and our affections devoted to you. In Jesus' name, the church says together, amen. Would you stand as we worship?